Part Two, Chapter Six: The Battle of the Third Day, Johnson's Division Driven Out. At dawn on the third, the enemy opened on us with artillery, but the firing had no definite purpose, and after some hours, it gradually slackened. The principal interest early in the day necessarily centered on the right, where Johnson's position not only endangered the safety of the army, but compromised our retreat. It was therefore essential to drive him out as soon as possible. To this end, batteries were established during the night on all the prominent points in that vicinity. Geary had returned with his division about midnight, and was not a little astonished to find the rebels established in the works he had left. He determined to contest possession with them at daylight. In the meantime he joined Green and formed part of his line perpendicular to our main line of battle, and part fronting the enemy. On the other hand, Ewell, having obtained a foothold, swore he would not be driven out, and hastened to reinforce Johnson with Daniel's and O'Neill's brigades from Rhodes' division. As soon as objects could be discerned in the early gray of the morning, our artillery opened fire. As Johnson, on account of the steep declivities and other obstacles, had not been able to bring any artillery with him, he could not reply. It would not do to remain quiet under this fire, and he determined to charge, in hopes of winning a better position on higher ground. His men, the old Stonewall Brigade leading, rushed bravely forward, but were as gallantly met by Kane's brigade of Geary's division and a close and severe struggle ensued for four hours among the trees and rocks. Ruger's division of the Twelfth Corps came up and formed on the rebel left, taking them in flank and threatening them in reverse. Indeed, as the rest of our line were not engaged, there was plenty of support for Geary. Troops were sent him, including Shaler's brigade, which took the front, and was soon warmly engaged in re-establishing the line. At about eleven a.m., finding the contest hopeless, and his retreat threatened by a force sent down to Rock Creek, Johnson yielded slowly and reluctantly to a charge made by Geary's division, gave up the position, and withdrew to Rock Creek, where he remained until night. Our line was once more intact. All that the enemy had gained by dogged determination and desperate bravery was lost from a lack of coordination caused perhaps by the great difficulty of communicating orders over this long concave line where every route was swept by our fire. Lee had now attacked both flanks of the Army of the Potomac without having been able to establish himself permanently on either. Notwithstanding the repulse of the previous day, he was very desirous of turning the left, for once well posted there he could secure his own retreat while interposing between Meade and Washington. He rode over with Longstreet to that end of the line to see what could be done. General Wofford, who commanded a brigade of McLaws' division, writes in a recent letter to General Crawford, United States Army, as follows. Quote, Lee and Longstreet came to my brigade Friday morning before the artillery opened fire. I told him that the afternoon before I nearly reached the crest. He asked if I could not go there now. I replied, no, General, I think not. He said quickly, Why not? Because, I said, General, the enemy have had all night to entrench and reinforce. I had been pursuing a broken enemy, and the situation was now very different. 
Having failed at each extremity, it only remained to Lee to retreat, or attack the center. Such high expectations had been formed in the southern states in regard to his conquest of the north, that he determined to make another effort. He still had Pickett's division, the Flower of Virginia, which had not been engaged, and which was full of enthusiasm. He resolved to launch them against our center, supported on either flank by the advance of the main portion of the army. He had hoped that Johnson's division would have been able to maintain its position on the right, so that the Union center could be assailed in front and rear at the same time, but Johnson having been driven out, it was necessary to trust to Pickett alone, or abandon the whole enterprise and return to Virginia. Everything was quiet up to 1 p.m., as the enemy were massing their batteries and concentrating their forces preparatory to the grand charge, the supreme effort, which was to determine the fate of the campaign and to settle the point whether freedom or slavery was to rule the northern states. It seems to me there was some lack of judgment in the preparations. Heth's division, now under Pettigrew, which had been so severely handled on the first day, and which was composed in a great measure of new troops, was designated to support Pickett's left and join in the attack at close quarters. Wilcox, too, who one would think had been pretty well fought out the day before, in his desperate enterprise of attempting to crown the crest, was directed to support the right flank of the attack. Wright's brigade was formed in rear, and Pender's division on the left of Pettigrew, but there was a long distance between Wilcox and Longstreet's forces on the right. At 1 p.m. a signal gun was fired and 115 guns opened against Hancock's command, consisting of the First Corps under Newton, the Second Corps under Gibbon, the Third Corps under Burney, and against the Eleventh Corps under Howard. The object of this heavy artillery fire was to break up our lines and prepare the way for Pickett's charge. The exigencies of the battle had caused the First Corps to be divided, Wadsworth's division being on the right at Culp's Hill, Robinson on Gibbon's right, and my own division intervening between Caldwell on the left and Gibbon on the right. The convex shape of our line did not give us as much space as that of the enemy, but General Hunt, chief of artillery, promptly posted eighty guns along the crest, as many as it would hold, to answer the fire, and the batteries on both sides suffered severely in the two hours' cannonade. Not less than eleven caissons were blown up and destroyed, one quite near me. When the smoke went up from these explosions, rebel yells of exultation could be heard along a line of several miles. At 3 p.m., General Hunt ordered our artillery fire to cease, in order to cool the guns and to preserve some rounds for the contest at close quarters, which he foresaw would soon take place. My own men did not suffer a great deal from this cannonade, as I sheltered them as much as possible under the crest of the hill and behind rocks, trees, and stone fences. The cessation of our fire gave the enemy the idea they had silenced our batteries, and Pickett at once moved forward, to break the left centre of the Union line and occupy the crest of the ridge. The other forces on his right and left were expected to move up and enlarge the opening thus made, so that finally the two wings of the Union army would be permanently separated and flung off by this entering wedge in eccentric directions. A note here. 
the attack was so important, so momentous, and so contrary to Longstreet's judgment, that when Pickett asked for orders to advance he gave no reply, and Pickett said proudly, I shall go forward, sir. End of the note. This great column of attack, it was supposed, numbered about seventeen thousand men, but southern writers have a peculiar arithmetic by which they always cipher down their forces to nothing. Even on the left, on the preceding day, when our troops in front of Little Round Top were assailed by a line a mile and a half long, they figure it almost out of existence. The force that now advanced would have been larger still had it not been for a spirited attack by Kilpatrick against the left of Longstreet's corps, detaining some troops there which otherwise might have cooperated in the grand assault against our center. It necessarily took the rebels some time to form and cross the intervening space, and Hunt took advantage of the opportunity to withdraw the batteries that had been most injured, sending others in their place from the reserve artillery, which had not been engaged. He also replenished the ammunition boxes, and stood ready to receive the foe as he came forward, first with solid shot, next with shell, and lastly, when he came in close quarters, with canister. General Meade's headquarters was in the center of this cannonade, and as the balls were flying very thickly there, and killing the horses of his staff, he found it necessary temporarily to abandon the place. Where nothing is to be gained by exposure, it is sound sense to shelter men and officers as much as possible. He rode over to Powers Hill, made his headquarters with General Slocum, and when the firing ceased rode back again. During his absence the charge took place. He has stated that it was his intention to throw the Fifth and Sixth Corps on the flanks of the attacking force, but no orders to this effect were issued, and it is questionable whether such an arrangement would have been a good one. It would have disgarnished the left, where Longstreet was still strong in numbers, and in forming perpendicular to our line of battle the two corps would necessarily have exposed their own outer flanks to attack. Indeed, the rebels had provided for just such a contingency by posting Wilcox's brigade and Perry's brigade under Colonel Lang on the left, both in rear of the charging column under Pickett and Pettigrew. Owing to a mistake or misunderstanding, this disposition, however, did not turn out well for the enemy. It was not intended by Providence that the northern states should pass under the iron rule of the slave power, and on this occasion every plan made by Lee was thwarted in the most unexpected manner. The distance to be traversed by Pickett's column was about a mile and a half from the woods where they started, to the crest of the ridge they desired to attain. They suffered severely from our artillery, which opened on them with solid shot as soon as they came in sight. When halfway across the plain they were vigorously shelled, double canisters were reserved for their nearer approach. At first the direction of their march appeared to be directly toward my division. When within five hundred yards of us, however, Pickett halted and changed direction obliquely about forty-five degrees, so that the attack passed me and struck Gibbon's division on my right. Just here one of those providential circumstances occurred which favored us so much, for Wilcox and Lang, who guarded Pickett's right flank, did not follow his oblique movement but kept on straight to the front, so that soon there was a wide interval between their troops and the main body, 
leaving Pickett's right fully uncovered. The rebels came on magnificently. As fast as the shot and shell tore through their lines, they closed up the gaps and pressed forward. When they reached the Emmitsburg Road, the canister began to make fearful chasms in their ranks. They also suffered severely from a battery on Little Round Top, which enfiladed their line. One shell killed and wounded ten men. Gibbon had directed his command to reserve their fire until the enemy were near enough to make it very effective. Pickett's advance dashed up to the fence occupied by the skirmishers of the Second Corps, near the Emmitsburg Road, and drove them back. Then the musketry blazed forth with deadly effect, and Pettigrew's men began to waver on the left and fall behind, for the nature of the ground was such that they were more exposed than any other portions of the line. They were much shaken by the artillery fire, and that of Hayes' division sent them back in masses. Note. The front line of Hayes' division, which received this charge, was composed of the 12th New Jersey, 14th Connecticut, and 1st Delaware. The second line was composed of the 111th, 125th, 126th, and 39th New York. End of the note. Before the first line of rebels reached a second fence and stone wall, behind which our main body was posted, it was obliged to pass a demi-brigade under Colonel Theodore B. Gates, of the 20th New York State Militia, and a Vermont brigade under General Stannard, both belonging to my command. When Pickett's right became exposed in consequence of the divergence of Wilcox's command, Stannard seized the opportunity to make a flank attack, and while his left regiment, the 14th, poured in a heavy oblique fire, he changed front with his two right regiments, the 13th and 16th, which brought them perpendicular to the rebel line of march. In cases of this kind, when struck directly on the flank, troops are more or less unable to defend themselves, and Kemper's brigade crowded in towards the center in order to avoid Stannard's energetic and deadly attack. They were closely followed up by Gates's command, who continued to fire into them at close range. This caused many to surrender, others to retreat outright, and others simply to crowd together. Simultaneously with Stannard's attack, the 8th Ohio, which was on picket, overlapping the rebel left, closed in on that flank with great effect. Nevertheless, the next brigade, that of Armistead, united to Garnet's brigade, pressed on, and in spite of death-dealing bolts on all sides, Pickett determined to break Gibbon's line and capture his guns. Although Webb's front was the focus of the concentrated artillery fire, and he had already lost fifty men and some valuable officers, his line remained firm and unshaken. It devolved upon him now to meet the great charge which was to decide the fate of the day. It would have been difficult to find a man better fitted for such an emergency. He was nerved to great deeds by the memory of his ancestors, who in former days had rendered distinguished services to the Republic, and felt that the results of the whole war might depend upon his holding of the position. His men were equally resolute. Cushing's battery, A, 4th United States Artillery, which had been posted on the crest, and Brown's Rhode Island battery on his left, were both practically destroyed by the cannonade. The horses were prostrated, every officer but one was struck, and Cushing had but one serviceable gun left. 
As Pickett's advance came very close to the first line, young Cushing, mortally wounded in both thighs, ran his last serviceable gun down to the fence and said, Webb, I will give them one more shot. At the moment of the last discharge he called out, Goodbye, and fell dead at the post of duty. Webb sent for fresh batteries to replace the two that were disabled, and Wheeler's first New York independent battery came up just before the attack, and took the place of Cushing's battery on the left. Armistead pressed forward, leaped the stone wall, waving his sword with his hat on it, followed by about a hundred of his men, several of whom carried battle-flags. He shouted, "'Give them the cold steel, boys!' and laid his hands upon a gun. The battery for a few minutes was in his possession, and the rebel flag flew triumphantly over our line. But Webb was at the front, very near Armistead, animating and encouraging his men. He led the 72nd Pennsylvania Regiment against the enemy, and posted a line of wounded men in rear, to drive back or shoot every man that deserted his duty. A portion of the 71st Pennsylvania, behind a stone wall on the right, threw in a deadly flanking fire while a great part of the 69th Pennsylvania and the remainder of the 71st made stern resistance from a copse of trees on the left, near where the enemy had broken the line, and where our men were shot with the rebel muskets touching their breasts. Then came a splendid charge of two regiments, led by Colonel Hall, which passed completely through Webb's line, and engaged the enemy in a hand-to-hand -hand conflict. Armistead was shot down by the side of the gun he had taken, it is said he had fought on our side in the first battle at Bull Run, but had then been seduced by Southern affiliations to join in the rebellion, and now, dying in the effort to extend the area of slavery over the free states, he saw with a clearer vision that he had been engaged in an unholy cause, and said to one of our officers who leaned over him, "'Tell Hancock I have wronged him, and have wronged my country.'" A note here. Colonel Norman J. Hall, commanding a brigade in Hancock's Corps, who rendered this great service, was one of the garrison who defended Fort Sumter at the beginning of the war. At that time he was the second lieutenant of my company. End of the note. Both Gibbon and Webb were wounded, and the loss in officers and men was very heavy. Two rebel brigadier generals were killed, and more prisoners were taken than twice Webb's brigade six battle-flags, and fourteen hundred sixty-three muskets were also gathered in. My command being a little to the left, I witnessed this scene, and after it was over, sent out stretcher-bearers attached to the ambulance train, and had numbers of wounded Confederates brought in and cared for. I was told that there was one man among these whose conversation seemed to indicate that he was a general officer. I sent to ascertain his rank, but he replied, Tell General Doubleday in a few minutes I shall be where there is no rank. He expired soon after, and I never learned his name. The rebels did not seem to appreciate my humanity in sending out to bring in their wounded, for they opened a savage fire against the stretcher-bearers. One shell burst among us, a piece of it knocked me over on my horse's neck, and wounded Lieutenant Cowdery of my staff. When Pickett, the great leader, looked around the top of the ridge he had temporarily gained, he saw it was impossible to hold the position. Troops were rushing in on him from all sides. 
the Second Corps were engaged in a furious assault on his front. His men were fighting with clubbed muskets, and even banner staves were intertwined in a fierce and hopeless struggle. My division of the First Corps were on his right flank, giving deadly blows there, and the Third Corps were closing up to attack. Pettigrew's forces on his left had given way, and a heavy skirmish line began to accumulate on that flank. He saw his men surrendering in masses, and, with a heart full of anguish, ordered a retreat. Death had been busy on all sides, and few indeed now remained of that magnificent column which had advanced so proudly, led by the ney of the rebel army, and those few fell back in disorder and without organization, behind Wright's brigade, which had been sent forward to cover the retreat. At first, however, when struck by Standard on the flank, and when Pickett's charge was spent, they rallied in a little slashing, where a grove had been cut down by our troops to leave an opening for our artillery. There two regiments of Rowley's brigade of my division, the 151st Pennsylvania and the 20th New York State Militia, under Colonel Theodore R. Gates, of the latter regiment, made a gallant charge, and drove them out. Pettigrew's division, it is said, lost two thousand prisoners and fifteen battle-flags on the left. While this severe contest was going on in front of Webb, Wilcox deployed his command and opened a feeble fire against Caldwell's division on my left. Standard repeated the maneuver which had been so successful against Kemper's brigade by detaching the 14th and 16th Vermont to take Wilcox in flank. Wilcox thus attacked on his right, while a long row of batteries tore the front of his line to pieces with canister, could gain no foothold. He found himself exposed to a tremendous crossfire, and was obliged to retreat, but a great portion of his command were brought in as prisoners by standard, and battle-flags were gathered in sheaves. Note here. As standard's brigade were new troops, and had been stationed near Washington, the men had dubbed them the Paper-Collar Brigade, because some of them were wearing paper collars, and after this fight the term was never again applied to them. End of the note. A portion of Longstreet's corps, Benning's, Robertson's, and Law's brigades, advanced against the two round-tops to prevent reinforcements from being sent from that vicinity to meet Pickett's charge. Kilpatrick interfered with this program, however, for about 2 p.m., he made his appearance on our left with Farnsworth's brigade and Merritt's brigade of regulars, accompanied by Graham's and Elder's batteries of the regular army, to attack the rebel right with a view to reach their ammunition trains, which were in the vicinity. The rebels say his men came on yelling like demons. Having driven back the skirmishers who guarded that flank, Merritt deployed on the left and soon became engaged there with Anderson's Georgia Brigade, which was supported by two batteries. On the right, Farnsworth, with the 1st Vermont Regiment of his brigade, leaped the fence and advanced until he came to a second stone fence, where he was checked by an attack on his right flank from the 4th Alabama Regiment of Law's Brigade, which came back for that purpose from a demonstration it was making against Round Top. Farnsworth then turned and, leaping another fence in a storm of shot and shell, made a gallant attempt to capture Backman's battery, but was unable to do so, as it was promptly supported by the 9th Georgia Regiment of Anderson's Brigade. Farnsworth was killed in this charge, and the 1st Vermont found itself enclosed in a field, with high fences on all sides, 
behind which masses of infantry were constantly rising up and firing. The regiment was all broken up and forced to retire in detachments. Kilpatrick, after fighting some time longer, without making much progress, fell back on account of the constant reinforcements that were augmenting the force opposed to him. Although he had not succeeded in capturing the ammunition train, he had made a valuable diversion on the left, which doubtless prevented the enemy from assailing Round Top with vigor, or detaching a force to aid Pickett. The Confederate General Benning states that the prompt action of General Law in posting the artillery in the road, and the 7th and 9th Georgia regiments on each side, was all that saved the train from capture. There was nothing else to save it. He also says that two-thirds of Pickett's command were killed, wounded, or captured. Every brigade commander and every field officer except one fell. Lee and Longstreet had seen from the edge of the woods, with great exultation, the blue flag of Virginia waving over the crest occupied by the Union troops. It seemed the harbinger of great success to Lee. He thought the Union army was conquered at last. The long struggle was over, and peace would soon come, accompanied by the acknowledgment of the independence of the Southern Confederacy. It was but a passing dream. The flag receded and soon the plain was covered with fugitives making their way to the rear. Then, anticipating an immediate pursuit, he used every effort to rally men and officers, and made strenuous efforts to get his artillery in position to be effective. The Confederate General A. R. Wright criticizes this attack and very justly says, quote, The difficulty was not so much in reaching Cemetery Ridge or taking it, my brigade did so on the afternoon of the second, but the trouble was to hold it, for the whole Federal army was massed in a sort of horseshoe, and could rapidly reinforce the point to any extent, while the long enveloping Confederate line could not support properly enough. This agrees with what I have said in relation to the convex and concave orders of battle. General Gibbon had sent Lieutenant Haskell of his staff to Powers Hill to notify General Meade that the charge was coming. As Meade approached his own headquarters, he heard firing on the crest above, and went up to ascertain the cause. He found the charge had been repulsed, and ejaculated, "'Thank God!' When Lee learned that Johnson had yielded his position on the right, and therefore could not cooperate with Pickett's advance, he sent Stuart's cavalry around to accomplish the same object by attacking the right and rear of our army. Howard saw the rebel cavalry moving off in that direction, and David Gregg, whose division was near White's Creek where it crosses the Baltimore Pike, received orders about noon to guard Slocum's right and rear. Custer had already been contending with his brigade against portions of the enemy's force in that direction when Gregg sent forward McIntosh's brigade to relieve him, and followed soon after with J. Irving Gregg's brigade. Custer was under orders to join Kilpatrick's command, to which he belonged, but the exigencies of the battle soon forced Gregg to detain him. McIntosh, having taken the place of Custer, pushed forward to develop the enemy's line, which he found very strongly posted, the artillery being on a commanding ridge which overlooked the whole country, and covered by dismounted cavalry in woods, buildings, and behind fences below. 
McIntosh became warmly engaged and sent back for Randall's battery to act against the rebel guns on the crest and drive the enemy out of the buildings. The guns above were silenced by Pennington's and Randall's batteries, and the force below driven out of the houses by Lieutenant Chester's section of the latter. The buildings and fences were then occupied by our troops. The enemy attempted to regain them by a charge against McIntosh's right flank, but were repulsed. In the meantime Gregg came up with the other brigade, and assumed command of the field. The battle now became warm, for W. H. F. Lee's brigade, under Chambliss, advanced to support the skirmish line, and the 1st New Jersey, being out of ammunition, was charged and routed by the 1st Virginia. The 7th Michigan, a new regiment which came up to support it, was also driven in, for the enemy's dismounted line reinforced the 1st Virginia. The latter regiment, which had held on with desperate tenacity, although attacked on both flanks, was at last compelled to fall back by an attack made by part of the 5th Michigan. The contending forces were now pretty well exhausted when, to the dismay of our men, a fresh brigade under Wade Hampton, which Stuart had kept in reserve, made its appearance, and new and desperate exertions were required to stem its progress. There was little time to act, but every sabre that could be brought forward was used. As Hampton came on, our artillery under Pennington and Randall made terrible gaps in his ranks. Chester's section kept firing canister until the rebels were within fifty yards of him. The enemy were temporarily stopped by a desperate charge on their flank, made by only sixteen men of the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry, under Captains Treachell and Rogers, accompanied by Captain Newhall of McIntosh's staff. This little band of heroes were nearly all disabled or killed, but they succeeded in delaying the enemy, already shattered by canister from Chester's guns, until Custer was able to bring up the 1st Michigan and lead them to the charge, shouting, "'Come on, you wolverines!' Every available sabre was thrown in. General McIntosh and his staff and orderlies charged into the melee as individuals. Hampton and Fitz Lee headed the enemy, and Custer our troops. Lieutenant Colonel W. Brooke Rawl, the historian of the conflict, who was present, says, For minutes, which seemed like hours, amid the clashing of the sabres, the rattle of the small arms, the frenzied imprecations, the demands to surrender, the undaunted replies, and the appeals for mercy, the Confederate column stood its ground. A fresh squadron was brought up under Captain Hart of the 1st New Jersey, and the enemy at last gave way and retired. Both sides still confronted each other, but the battle was over, for Pickett's charge had failed, and there was no longer any object in continuing the contest. Stuart was undoubtedly baffled, and the object of his expedition frustrated, yet he stated in his official report that he was in a position to intercept the Union retreat in case Pickett had been successful. At night he retreated to regain his communications with Ewell's left. This battle being off of the official maps has hardly been alluded to in the various histories which have been written, but its results were important and deserve to be commemorated. When Pickett's charge was repulsed, and the whole plain covered with fugitives, we all expected that Wellington's command at Waterloo, of up guards and at them, would be repeated, and that a grand counter-charge would be made. 
but General Meade had made no arrangements to give a return thrust. It seems to me he should have posted the Sixth and part of the Twelfth Corps in rear of Gibbon's division the moment Pickett's infantry were seen emerging from the woods, a mile and a half off. If they broke through our centre, these corps would have been there to receive them, and if they failed to pierce our line and retreated, the two corps could have followed them up promptly before they had time to rally and reorganize. An advance by Sykes would have kept Longstreet in position. In all probability, we would have cut the enemy's army in two, and captured the long line of batteries opposite us, which were but slightly guarded. Hancock, lying wounded in an ambulance, wrote to Meade, recommending that this be done. Meade, it is true, recognized in some sort the good effects of a counter-blow, but to be effective the movement should have been prepared beforehand. It was too late to commence making preparations for an advance, when some time had elapsed and when Lee had rallied his troops, and made all his arrangements to resist an assault. It was ascertained afterward that he had twenty rounds of ammunition left per gun, but it was not evenly distributed, and some batteries in front had fired away all their cartridges. A counter-charge under such circumstances is considered almost imperative in war, for the beaten army, running and dismayed, cannot, in the nature of things, resist with much spirit, whereas the pursuers, highly elated by their success, and with the prospect of ending the contest, fight with more energy and bravery. Rhodes says the Union forces were so long in occupying the town and in coming forward after the repulse of the enemy, that it was generally thought they had retreated. Meade rode leisurely over to the Fifth Corps on the left, and told Sykes to send out and see if the enemy in his front was firm and holding on to their position. A brigade preceded by skirmishers was accordingly sent forward, but as Longstreet's troops were well fortified, they resisted the advance, and Meade, finding some hours had elapsed and that Lee had closed up his lines and was fortifying against him, gave up all idea of a counter-attack. End of chapter